Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. Our thanks to Hotel X, the official hotel of Matchpoint Canada for this week's episode. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. We're looking back at Rome, all the action that transpired there. Mike French Open is just around the corner, and this week had an opportunity to speak with, uh, I think, one of the most exciting commentators in our sport, uh, Robbie Koenig. Yeah, Robbie Koenig is so much fun to listen to. I enjoyed the uh, the interview you did with him. And uh, is this the first time he's been on Matchpoint Canada? Yes, it is the first time we've had him, uh, I, which, is, I which is great. Uh, I couldn't remember. I know you've been talking to him on and off for a while, so that was great to, to get him on there. And yeah, you can tell this is a guy that loves the sport, uh, you know, going back to his days uh, as a player, obviously, successful doubles career, as you mentioned, and we'll get to listen to in a few moments, and then making that smooth transition to bring a, being a uh, really relevant and enjoyable uh, commentator and analyst for tennis matches, which is not something that every former player can just smoothly make that transition. Just because you're good playing a sport doesn't mean you're going to be entertaining and analytical and, and combine all of those things on the other side of things. But he's one who's flourished um, in that role. So I, I'm sure you had a great time uh, doing this one with him. Yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. I love the South African accent. We touch on uh, tennis there from his home country as well. And uh, really, really his career in tennis and broadcasting. So without further ado, here's my interview with Robbie Koenig. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. And this week, I'm happy to be joined by one of the premier broadcasters in our sport. He has one of the most recognizable voices on the ATP circuit. We hear him covering the slams. He's a former player and five-time champion in doubles. He's also reached the semifinals of the U.S. Open uh, back in 1998. So pleased to be joined this week by Robbie Koenig. Robbie, thanks so much uh, for taking the time uh, to chat with me this week. No, good to catch up, Ben. Um, always nice to see what's going on in your neck of the woods and always enjoy my time I am in Canada. So thanks for having me on your show. Well, thank you so much for for the kind words. And uh, it, we, we've, you know, so enjoyed, I think, listening to your commentary over the years in, in the sport. It's it's a unique style that so many fans and pundits, I think, love. But I, I'd love to just ask you about your background in tennis because, um, you, you had a great career yourself. You're a strong doubles player, as I mentioned at the top, winning five times, had some success at the slam level. Were you always interested in a ten- tennis from a young age? And, and how did you sort of find your way uh, into the sport as a career? Yeah, I was um, a little bit of a tennis family in so much as uh, my parents played socially. But my brother, um, I'm the baby of four kids, Ben, and my brother was much older than me. He's the oldest, I'm the youngest. And he was a good player. He was the same age as Kevin Curran, Wimbledon finalist, lost to Boris Becker in the finals in 85. Um, And he was pretty good. Uh, He studied law. When Kevin went to University of Texas and said, hey, come to the States with me. We should go over there. That's where the tennis is happening. My parents said, no, you've got to get a a proper job. Tennis is not a proper job. Go and study. And he went to study law, became a very successful lawyer. But he always looked back. Uh, at those tennis days and wondered what if, especially when I was coming through. So, you know, when I got to 14, 15, we used to play regularly, used to beat up on me until I, until I eventually beat him. It's, you know, it's one of those tipping points where you beat him once and then you never lose to him again. Mm-hmm. So he was uh, quite a big mentor to me growing up and always had my back that if I ever wanted to go pro, um, you know, he, he had done okay financially and he said he'd be able to support me for a year or two. 
But I was never a top junior, hey Ben. Uh, I was always like five or six in the country. When the top four guys were traveling internationally, I was five. When I was ranked four, it always seemed like the top three guys traveled internationally. So I always missed out, never traveled internationally as a junior. Um, so, yeah, I never had any international junior experience. And I only got half decent around 17, 18. And then we had military service in South Africa when I was uh, still growing up. And it was like, do I do, it had just changed when I finished high school from two years to one. And it was like, do I go now and just get it behind me? Or do I go to college in the States and like defer it? But in the back of my mind, I was like, I don't want to come back and do this, right? Um, and I wish I had gone to college in the States. I had, a, I had two offers, one from Miami and the other from Pepperdine. Um, and I didn't take it up. I did one year military service. And it's my biggest regret because I didn't play much tennis that year. And I think it really put me behind. Uh, guys uh, of my era, the likes of a Kevin Elliott or somebody like that, um, in that year, he, he developed incredibly physically. We were both quite small in stature. And I just saw what it did to him. And it was one of my biggest regrets from a tennis standpoint of view. And of course, um, military service got abolished a couple of years later. So it ended up being a waste of time. But yeah, that's how, kinda, how I got into it. And then just went on tour and started grinding, man, in the futures back in the States. Uh, in fact, the biggest thing that ever happened to me which was a fantastic barometer for the level early on was I played, uh, they used to be called satellites back in the day. I don't know if you remember satellites, uh, yeah, they were like yeah, future, yeah. futures, but they came in force. And I played one in Germany and one in France, beginning of the year. Historically, they'd always been the toughest two satellites. And a lot of players who played with us then ended up becoming top 100, top 50 players. And that was my first trip internationally for tennis. And I thought, Jeez, these guys are good you know if this is the level i'm gonna to have to up my game big time so straight away instead of playing in these obscure places where perhaps draws might be easier and get a false sense of how good i was playing the toughest futures early on in my career was the best thing that ever happened to me ben and helped me you know get my my head into gear and train like a maniac it's, it's almost helpful getting kind of thrown into that proverbial fire right away, right? So you, you know what to, to expect as you're entering your career. That's a, that's a great story. And um, we, we see this transition sometimes from players. Um, I, I think every player growing up who, who does become pro has aspirations for singles. And then at some point, they, they make a transition uh, to a successful doubles career. Our great example, of course, in Canada, Daniel Nestor, who's, I think, one of the greatest doubles players of all time. Um, at what point did you realize um, I, I have a lot of strong skills in doubles and, and maybe this is my calling card? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, so I played seven years, pretty much singles, uh, qualified a couple of times at tour events, but I was a certain volume, out and out certain volume. I mean, uh, you know, in the mold of a player like Danny, certain volume coming in all the time as much as we could. Obviously, he's a much better version of me uh, than me. Um, but my serve wasn't big enough. So on my best days when I was serving lights out, I could probably compete at the lower level of the tour. So maybe between, you know, against guys 50 to 100, but I had to be playing 10 out of 10. And as we know, you're very seldom playing 10 out of 10 tennis in the, in the course of a year. Probably most of the time you're playing at uh, anywhere between seven and eight and a half out of 10. And on your very best days, maybe a dozen of those, you're lucky if you're playing 10 out of 10. So you know, I was dipping into tour level, losing, playing qualies. Um, and as soon as my ranking was good enough, I wanted to play challenges and tour event. 
Back in those days, playing qualies at tour levels was not like it was now. You could literally show up to any tour event and if you were ranked three or 400 in the world, you would get into qualies, no problem. And I'm talking about Masters 1000 events as well, except Indian Wells. That was the only one that was always tougher than the rest. So I wanted to test myself against the best players. And after seven years, not making a whole lot of money, I think after seven years of being on tour, I probably had about $30,000 or $40,000 in the bank. Um, and I remember losing in the qualifying at the US Open and of singles. And I was like, you know, what am I doing, man? What's going on here? I'm getting on now. I'm like 25, I'm 26 now. I've been on tour a while. And the most chance meeting, Craig Tiley, tournament director, head of Tennis Australia. Craig used to coach uh, John Lafney Diego, a friend of ours. He was our Davis Cup captain as well, was Craig. And walking around the lobby there at uh, the US Open, uh, this is 15 minutes before signing at the US Open. And I bumped into Craig and I said, hey, CT, what's, uh, you know, who's John Lafney? I knew he was coaching John Lafney. Who's JL playing uh, dubs with? Does he, you know, does he want to play qualies? He said, no, Rob, he's actually playing that exhibition, Huggy Bear. Um, and he doesn't really want to play qualies. He was looking for somebody to get into the main draw or not play at all. I said, come on, man, just give him a call right now. Tell him I'm desperate to play dubs. Uh, you know, fellow countrymen, let's give it a go. Anyway, he ends up phoning him. JL hears it's me. He's like, sign us in, Robbie. I'll, I'll drive down from the Hamptons and uh, let's see if we get in. So I said, hang on, hang on. It's like 20 minutes to go till uh, sign-in. I'll phone you after the sign-in. Anyway, so I head up to the sign-in, check it out. And Ben, we are lost in. Lost in. Yeah. So now I'm thinking, hey, I'm not going to sign in now. What I'm going to do is wait till like there's a minute left so that we're guaranteed of getting in and other guys don't swap. So I wait till the very last minute. I happened to know the guy who was uh, uh, one of the tournament soups. And he said, you know, last call, anybody need to sign in? I walked up there, took my time signing in myself and JL. And as soon as I finished writing, picked a piece of paper off, sign in closed. Cut a long story short. We qualify yeah. and we make the quarterfinals of the US Open that year, 97. Wow. And in the space of 10 or 12 days, I make more money playing dubs than I have my whole career playing singles. And that's that was the tipping point uh, for me in, in my career to follow dubs. Wow. No, that's that, that's an amazing story. And uh, you see how successfully it, it turned out. Very nice tactics waiting last moment. I, I love that. And uh, obviously, that was, a, that was a great partnership. Did you like gel instantly on the court? Did you kind of take the court right away and realize like, wow, we, we have this chemistry? Uh, yeah, you know, we were good friends off of the court. Um, he'd already had a successful spell playing uh, doubles at tour level and got injured and he was busy coming back. His ranking had dropped. Mm -hmm. So that's how we kind of came together. Um, but we were great friends off of the court. So that made it easy. You know, we were both natural seven volleyers. Um, and yeah, you know, that instant success, it's incredible the amount of belief it gave me to do it in a major. Yeah. I'd qualified on, on the odd occasion at tour level and dubs, but never won, you know, a couple of matches like I did there. Singles was my complete focus, I bet. Mm -hmm. um so and then yeah it just went from strength to strength thereafter and you know suddenly you're staying in these great hotels you you're playing all these great events that you, you've always seen on television um 
And it was, I felt like a rock star. I really did it, like an absolute rock star, five-star hotels. And yeah, I was always a hard worker. So that was never a problem. And just being around the tour and to see the professionalism, it was just so easy to, to be professional and take it, you know, just try and keep the level high. But hey, listen, I wasn't that talented. I didn't have any major weapons. So, you know, for me to carve out a, a career playing doubles, I had to work at it every single day. So um, I loved every minute of it. If I could have played till I was 65 and then retired, I probably would have done that again. Yeah. Well, well, kudos to you for an amazing tennis career. And then, of course, transitioning uh, to a, an immense broadcasting career. And, and for me, you have just the ultimate standout voice. And I think what makes a great broadcaster, and we have a number of them in our sport, is, you know, painting a story when we're watching a match and, and sort of capturing the moment, which you do so well. Did, did you feel like when back when you played more often that you felt like you had a keen eye for what was going on. If you just happened to be watching a match and, and was it sort of a seamless transition to realize maybe broadcasting is something for me, something for me post-career. Um, I was always good analytically mm -hmm. because, because as a player, I had no strengths. I had to figure out how to win a point, you know, two or three shots in advance. And I think, that was my strength when it came to getting into broadcasting, trying to give the viewer at home a bit more of a layman's view um, into the pro's psyche. And yeah, I think that was my initial strength, definitely. And, you know, just getting that message across. Um, and I was forever grateful when I started out commentating. Most of my, most of my hours were spent in the booth with Jason Goodall. And Jason and I, you know, we spent hours and hours together and, and he held me to very high standards, which to a lot of people with a, a broadcast, uh, a co-commentator who can be uh, quite critical, but critical for the right reasons, because mm -hmm. he wanted the best out of the team. It's a team effort. It's not, you're not playing singles in the booth. Um, and, and, and in an industry where no one wants to give critical feedback everybody just taps each other in the back and says good job good job and then you know as soon as out the door I mean that guy was you know he never stopped talking he, you know he mixed up his player blah 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 um mm -hmm. and Jace I'm forever grateful because he kept me on my toes for a decade and some change and um of course you grow together as a, as a broadcasting team um so yeah and you, you know you develop your style and I mean, I love the game and I'm a tennis fan as much as I'm a broadcaster. I still struggle it, struggle with it when people come up to you and because they hear you on TV or see you on TV, they think you're a bit of a celebrity. But well, I'm as much of a tennis fan as you are. That's what a lot of people don't realize. And uh, I, I've never worked it down in my life. I really haven't. Eh? Mm -hmm. That's that, that's wonderful. And uh, I, I think one aspect that, that gives you your unique style, I, I think the word I would use for it is uh, colloquialisms and these, these one liners that, that stand out and paint the picture of an amazing highlight lines that, you know, tougher than a $2 steak, things like this. Do, do you write these ahead of time? Have you always been like, were, were you the guy in your career, you were like, dropping one liners in the locker room? Or, or where do you come up with those? Um, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> Yes. Um, it, it probably started when tennis TV started to do more highlights of matches. 
Mm-hmm. And obviously, they're just clipping up great points within matches, five or six minutes highlights of every match. And when I started to listen back to see what my commentary was like from a critical aspect, I realized I was using the same adjectives all the time to describe good points. Because, of course, at the time when you're doing the match, you, you don't know what I said 20 points ago. It was an yeah. unbelievable rally. You kind of, you know, you're really back focused and, and, and you find yourself actually repeating the same adjectives all the time. And that was a bit of a wake-up call because, of course, as you know, sport in general is repetitive and there's only so many different ways you can probably describe a point or backhand. So I thought, okay, to get better, I had to think of different ways. I had to think of 50 different ways to describe a good shot, good forehand, good serve, a good backhand, a situation. Uh, you know, how do I describe somebody as tough, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of it comes from reading. Uh, I enjoy reading, watching documentaries and, you know, just list, um, music lines. I love 80s music. And some of the best lyrics, I think, were, were written by those geniuses back then. And sometimes it's a song I'm listening to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one I used the other day, uh, I love the Rolling Stones. Uh, I think Ons Jabur was playing and, you know, what a great drop shot she's got. And uh, you can't always get what you want. Um, uh, what's his name? Mick, Mick Jagger. Jagger. Uses, uh, practiced in the art of deception. Mm. And I just thought when I heard that in the song, I wrote it down straight away and I said, got to save it. Um, and for me, the, the key is always not to crowbar it in there. And I did that in the early years. I'd get a good, a good quote or a good saying, and I'd be so desperate to get it in. I just crowbar it in, and it wasn't the ideal situation. And as soon as I've done it, Jason had put off the microphone and he said, dude, you just crowbar that in a great line, but wrong time. And I was like, okay, sorry, yeah. man. And it was great to have a, you know, a lieutenant alongside me like that, just keeping me in order. But yes, because respect, sport is so repetitive by nature um i found that was something that i had to get better at so hence and i would uh, i would write down a lot of stuff because you can't always remember it off the cuff um and then the keys in the delivery right to make mm-hmm. it sound like it is not practiced or i'm not reading it off a piece of paper or off my computer um and just to make it sound like it's part of just my vocabulary which which in essence which in essence it is because it's either something i've read i've heard but just to keep it fresh in the memory you, you've got to have it written down i feel uh, so i have a list now the list is growing at about 270 now well the, the the thing that i love about it is that it, it it always comes through the broadcast is so real and i think that is because as you said i i can tell when you're commentating a match you are a tennis fan it, it seems like as a viewer i mean i get I get enthralled by these amazing shots, but it, it seems still um, years later, it, you you get amazed by incredible shots on the tennis court. Is that right? It's 100% right, man. And Ben, when you sit courtside uh, or you're at an event and you're watching these guys hit the ball, it's something our sport has to do better is, is I think get that lower camera angle going and showcase mm-hmm. the sport better. What these guys are able to do with a tennis ball, uh, it's a different sport to when I played. No question about it, man. It's a different sport. And, and just getting back to the point you made that I don't understand uh, when other broadcasters who might be commentating on tennis, when somebody hits an unbelievable shot and they go, that's a great forehand from Marin Cilic there, you know? 
It's like, what? Both went from Marin Cilic and that tone of voice, are you kidding me? Yeah. That shot was off the charts. Do you know how difficult that shot is to hit? Um, and, and I think it's important that, you know, maybe for 5% of the people we're commentating to, they have watched tennis on a regular basis and, and they've seen their shots and they probably still appreciate how good they are, but the other 95% don't. And it's important. I see it as my responsibility to, to let them know how great that was. But again, you know, a lot of it is just, uh, I'm flabbergasted by what these guys are able to do these days. And to be part of this generation, right? I've spent my, the best part of my broadcasting career talking about the big three plus Andy Murray, plus the likes of Stan and all these other guys trying to knock them over. It's mm-hmm. been an unbelievable time to be a broadcaster in tennis and, and to be front and center. Yeah, I know it's, it's been absolutely flipping awesome, man. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I think uh, we we're storylines abound right now with the quality of tennis we're getting and, and French open right around the corner. I have to ask you, and I'm sure you're getting a lot of questions about him. Um, maybe just the experience calling uh, a Carlos Alcaraz match, seeing what this guy can do on a tennis court. I don't want to say maybe you've never seen anything like it. Um, you, you know, you've watched tennis for a long time, but uh, how enthralled and, and amazed are you by, by the level he's producing and, and is he someone that you're already like penciling in as a guy who can be competing and, and winning slams in, in the near future? No, I don't think, I don't think he's, he's that good. I think he's freaking good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the guy's skill set is a joke, right? There's not a shot for me that he doesn't have. If we're being really picky, you know, he could tidy up his serve a little bit, but he, he can right. pop it, right? He can yep. still pop it. Um, you know, so, you know, a lot of guys don't have good feel on the forehand drop shot. Most people execute it so much better off the backhand side. That's the side that everybody's got the feel on, not him. He can do it equally good. In fact, one you could argue is almost better than his backhand because of, you know, the contrast between when he rips one and when he hits the drop shot. Um, uh, and for me, perhaps the two biggest things about him, so forget about the, the quality of the shot making on all his shots, and the movement, but it's the guy's clutch. You know, he's 10 and one in deciding set tie breaks in his pro career. Deciding set tie break is then lost one. That was to Berrettini at the Oz Open this year. Yep. Otherwise, he's won every seven, six in the third, every seven, six in the fifth. The other thing is, he's, he's never lost a final at two level. So every final he played at ATP two level, he's won. Who does that, man? Who yeah. does that? What about the old 250s? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a couple of Masters 1000s in there already. So his clutchness and his ability to go for it under pressure, the guy does not get tight. And of course, once that gets injected into your DNA at a young age, you have this undying belief that when things get tight, I'm going to get the job done. Because just look back historically what's been going on. I don't lose when we get to a third set tie break. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I get to finals, I don't lose. And, and actually, I draw that, um, that uh, parallel and contrast with Felix, right? He's obviously a phenom when he was uh, so young initially. But then, you know, he, he gets to these finals, loses. You know, six, seven, eight finals in a row he loses. Doesn't win a single set in those finals before eventually winning Rotterdam. And, you know, I wonder how that plays on his mind and how difficult will that make Felix's ability to win 500s, 
250s grand slams down the road when you have so much mental scoring in finals in big moments when you're younger right and i'm, no. I'm fascinated to see how that's going to play out ben mm-hmm. yeah i i mean we we at least have loved his level i think at the front end of this season he was playing great of course and canada winning atp cup and him reaching the quarterfinals of the australian open a lot of a lot of great signs I, I did want to ask you about the canadians that's a great point about Felix, uh, in terms of a commentary perspective, Denis Shapovalov, I, I think, is one of the best shot makers on the tour. Um, what do you love about watching him? And what's maybe what's maybe a flaw you think he kind of has to shore up to go to the next level? Um, I mean, he's every commentator's dream, man. Mm-hmm. The amount of incredible shot making stuff that he's going to do. Um, you know, you just... You're just breaking out the adjectives every second or third shot with that guy. And and I think even for tennis fans, just the, the wow factor that he brings is just, it's just awesome. But um, I wish Dennis would just realize that he doesn't have to finish every shot with a winner. And that it's okay to play uh, tennis uh, seven, a seven out of 10 point. Doesn't have to play 10 out of 10 all the time. And that because he is such an amazing athlete, he must use his athleticism sometimes to win points. You know, when he's defending, let's just say, for example, he's defending the corner of his backhand, you know, you don't have to hit a a topspin backhand down the line uh, and try and hit a winner off that. No, just chip that thing in the middle of the court and run. The next one's to the forehand, slice that. How often do we see Jocko and and Rafa do that? You know, they're in trouble. Just put the ball back in play because they know they're such great athletes that they can probably keep the ball and play two or three more times. And how often do we see opposition miss because of the aura that they have? And yeah. I think Dennis has to give opponents the chance to miss more rather than thinking I have to hit my way out of this point. That's uh, that's well said. I want to ask one question uh, just about South Africa as a tennis nation, then we can wrap up with something fun. And I, I, I've never really viewed South Africa as a booming tennis nation, but there have been some stars produced there. You look at Wayne Ferreira, Amanda Kutzer, uh, just recently two-time Grand Slam finalist Kevin Anderson announced his retirement. What, what's the current landscape uh, in, in South Africa now in terms of tennis? And do you think it's growing in popularity? Um, no, it's popular. It is popular, but it's such an expensive sport to certainly pursue long-term. I think, um, actually, you know, I shouldn't say it's not popular. That's probably incorrect of me. It's popular up until about 16 years of age. And then, you know, um, once the kids start to travel a a fair bit, if you're starting to play ITF junior events, if you've got a decent level, it becomes expensive, expensive for us, Ben. Certainly if you want to go to Europe, uh, the Federation doesn't have huge swaths of cash available to, to sponsor kids. You, you know, they've done better over the years um, to host more events here. In fact, uh, one of the high schools, the Kiro group of high schools and junior schools here in South Africa, there's probably about 50 of them now. And Tennis has become really popular school sport, and they themselves are generating a lot of money. Um, um, so it's basically like owning 50 tennis clubs, really. Mm. And um, the head of the tennis program there 
has done an incredible job and they are pumping a lot of money into the into the sport they're having you know j1s and j2s in south africa so they are sponsoring it um you know obviously you have to get the blessing of the federation but they're the ones putting up the money to host these events and really taking tennis to the next level so you know the private sector is very important for tennis yeah they've stepped up but uh, they are few and far between, but certainly as a recreational sport, very popular. Teach the kids hand-eye coordination because, as you know, it's quite a difficult sport. Um, and I think it's a it's a good sport if you learn it. Anything else you do, Ben, seems so easy. If you play, you know, cricket's a big sport here, or if you play soccer, um, you know, rugby. You know, the hand skills or rugby are pretty basic when you think of the hand-eye coordination you need for tennis. So. Certainly younger kids are, are quite good at, at playing it. Um, but certainly as a professional nation, it's very difficult. Most of the guys go the college route at least for a couple of years before hitting the tour like, like Kev did. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a couple of other guys as well. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll finish with a fun little segment. I like to call rapid fire questions. Get to know you a okay. little bit better. Uh, first one to start. Are you a morning or a night person? Morning morning person um what is unless, your unless after 10 o'clock i do some of my best work on the dance floor there's some 80s music <laughs> <laughs> that's terrific uh what would your go-to pre-match meal be uh, ahead of commentating a match um something light uh probably like a, a good mixed chicken salad uh coffee or tea or something else very good question one cup of coffee and it has to be proper ben proper, proper. <laughs> don't give me this uh, starbucks or any of these it's got to be uh, you know like a, a niche barista who knows how to make it perfect temperature i'll probably only have five coffees a week uh, cappuccino or flat white but they have to be from a you know a niche place um but then tea i'll probably have anywhere between 10 and 15 cups uh, a day i'll never have a coffee afternoon almost very rarely, but I love both. And I never used to touch coffee when in my playing days. Yep. And it's, it's a new thing. It's only about uh, 10 years old that I've got into my coffee big time. That's great. Uh, this will be a tough one, but what is, what is the shot that you saw live that you'll never forget? The uh, 26 shot rally commentating the Australian open final Federer and Nadal, uh, 4-3 break point uh, for set. That the ridiculous rally where, where Roger ends up hitting the 4-1 and one down the line. Um, yep. In the moment, insane. Mm-hmm. Favorite players match to commentate? If you, if you could pinpoint one player, maybe have a few. Um, you know, all the battles, Rafa was always the common denominator in the epic matches, whether it was Roger Rafa or mm-hmm. Novet. Rafa, he bought something out of those two guys that was unbelievable. Novak Roger was okay, but you didn't have that personality that Rafa had that just made matches seem, he's got this ability to make matches so exciting because of the energy that he brings. So, you know, those guys, I mean, when Stan was in his pomp and playing good good tennis, some of those matches that he played was just otherworldly. I mean... Del Potro, early stages of his career. I think that's been one of the biggest travesties for me of the mm-hmm. fact that that guy was injured. I think he would have robbed the, the big three of a fair few majors, man. 
Yeah, you know, I agree. Everybody forgets to win the U.S. Open that he beats you know Nadal and Federer in back-to-back matches, and mm-hmm. I think in that semis he beat Rafa like two, two, and four. It was a yeah, yeah, right. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't get to call more of his matches. Yeah, um, for you as a as a pro, do you have a favorite victory that you'll always always cherish in your career? Um, yeah, probably when I made the semis at the U.S. Open. Um, in 98. So I remember telling the story in 97, we qualified, had to come back in 98 and we'd done okay and all these points to defend and then we actually went one better. But I was looking to buy an, a, a place in London at the time because uh, I was looking for a base that we were only renting. And the difference in the prize money between quarters and semis, it doubled, Ben. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew that if, if we won the match, that was like a 50% deposit for a place in London. And I remember winning that match. And as, as excited as I was to be in the semis at the US Open, it was more about the fact now I had the cash I could go and buy this apartment in London that I had my eye on. And that is just like, you know, branded into my memory. That's great. Uh, last uh, but not least, best match you have ever called. Probably that 2017 Australian Open final was insane. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that was one. The other one I, I can't help but mention was for Radio Wimbledon was when Murray beat Djokovic for the first time, winning Wimbledon for the first time. Uh, and just the backstory of having played against Andy when he was 16, playing dubs against him. He got a wild card into the Nottingham Tour event. Um, the week before Wimbledon and just watching this kid's progression, you know, had, having seen him as a 16 year old, um, you know, knowing him a little bit and then watching that progression and then to call um, that final. And it was special to me as well. I have a Scottish grandmother. There's a lot of stuff that's interwoven there. And actually um, after he won the quarterfinals, I think it was, um, you don't know who's going to do the finals because, uh, you know, the rota only comes out every day and you might not necessarily be on the finals. And, and even then, you, when we do the finals radio, if you're the lead commentator, you do alternate sets. So you'll do one, three, and five. But I remember after lying in bed thinking, if Andy Murray wins Wimbledon, how am I going to describe it? And I, just lying in bed thinking about it, and you know, these words came to me, and you know, I just thought uh, that would be amazing if I could call a final, and that would be my rap line mm-hmm. if if Andy won. Um, and I quickly wrote it down, um, so I knew what the core of it was going to be. And then, obviously, the, the finals rolls around, and the rotor comes out, and Rob's doing sets one, three, and five. Obviously, Andy won in straight sets that day. Remember, he had that he was forty love up in that service game, and he then he lost all those match points, and it looked like Novak was going to come back. And um, yeah, I just remember when he won, you know, delivering my uh, my summation there and thinking, okay, I think I did that one justice. And how cool is it? The sixteen year old kid now is Wimbledon champion, and a seventy six years in the making. Uh, I'll never forget that. And, you know, Wimbledon's a special tournament. eh? 
Well, that's a, that's a special memory. Um, Robbie, thanks so much for sharing so many great memories, not only of your career, but uh, your broadcasting career, which of course uh, continues on. It, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on uh, Matchpoint Canada. We'd welcome you back anytime. Thanks, man. Love you guys there north of the border. Stay well, Ben. Thank you. There you have it, my interview with Robbie Koenig. I love how he told me he felt like he hasn't worked a day in his life, so you can tell he just so much enjoys what he's doing and is just such such a passionate tennis fan and obviously um, had some great stories with how he carved out this tennis career, making that transition from singles to doubles, meeting up with his buddy, getting last into a tournament, making a run to the quarters, and suddenly this is my new career. I thought that was really cool. I, I also enjoyed uh, just how, you know, being told when you're a, you're a young kid that you can't do something can be so inspiring to some people mm-hmm. and that they can just overcome, you know, uh, being, whether it's uh, professional sports or any line of work that you have a passion for. And, uh, and, you know, being told, I think he said that tennis is not a proper job. Well, he's certainly proven on multiple levels that that's not the case. And, you know, I think of my own little kids who are doing uh, tennis lessons this spring uh, here in our neighborhood. And, uh, you know, I have no aspirations or, or plans of any of them turning pro one day. Um, but if you have an interest in the sport, even if it's something like what you and I are doing and what Robbie's doing now, which is covering it as a member of the media, if you have a passion for a sport, you can find some career that's attached to it. If, you know, you work hard enough, you set your mind to it and you get a few lucky breaks along the way, too. Um, and I think it's just a great message that, that follow what you're passionate about and, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Yeah, yeah, that's that's well said. And uh, he was also uh, quite self-critical in terms of his broadcasting career, how he developed and, and listening back to some of his matches and realizing, oh, I'm using too many of the same adjectives. I had often wondered listening to him call matches like is he writing some of these great lines down like surely well, you he's asked not him point blank i think right? exactly yeah. and um i i can picture him being one of those creative guys in the locker room like ribbing his buddy with these great one-liners um which he he seemed to admit like yes i I can come up with a good one-liner, but also his passion for 1980s music and lyrics has inspired some of his lines, uh, which I think just makes for uh, listening um, just that much more entertaining. And when you're trying to attract new viewers to the sport, I I think the the aid of broadcasting and commentary is so important and he does such a thorough job. Yeah, that's the kind of guy or girl, uh, woman that that you want on the mic, someone that can entertain you in that way beyond just the basics. Mm -hmm. We see all too often on social media people criticizing tennis broadcasters and analysts. And I just want to say, first and foremost, what a difficult job, a job that I would never want to do. I'm happy hopping on the mic with you once a week to talk about our thoughts about what we've seen over the past six, seven days. But I would not want to be on the microphone daily covering multiple matches and trying to come up with creative ways to spin a tennis match, especially when, let's be honest, not every tennis match is an absolute winner. So kudos to him and kudos to all analysts and broadcasters out there that are doing their best, even though some, you know, better than others, perhaps. Um, but uh, yeah, his, his one-liners and, uh, and, and just the, um, the amount of effort and, and prep that he also must put in behind the scenes is, is so incredible. And um, as I mentioned, you know, earlier, not every former player necessarily can carve out that, that career. I'm sure some try and, and don't get to progress. One who is, you know, on every single slam, and I kind of wish he wasn't in some ways, was John McEnroe, mm-hmm. who to me, 
he relies on his name a lot and what he established in his career. And I really used to like listening to him when I was a kid. And I think as an adult, I'm a little bit more critical because you can sort of tell doesn't put in the amount of prep work that, that maybe you should be putting in to know the players outside of the top 20, which is yeah. the bulk of players on the tours. And so for a guy like Robbie Koenig, and I think maybe because he was a doubles player and had to grind a little bit harder during his career, definitely probably has more respect and puts in the time to get to know those players that are doing the same thing in their uh, tennis careers now. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point, actually. Um, and there are still so many of those former names who did have fantastic careers who I think are, are great on the microphone. G- Jim Courier, for one, I think he's so good on the sidelines. Just his eye for the game is fantastic. I believe you spoke to him a couple of years ago on the podcast. We love talking to broadcasters who know the game well, of course, and, and if they're former players. And, and Robbie, I think, is is one of the best. I was a little surprised that he, he kind of admitted tennis is not that popular in South Africa. I would hope it would be more so. And, you know, we just mentioned that uh, two-time Grand Slam, Grand Slam finalist Kevin Anderson from South Africa retired. You would hope it could grow even more because we're seeing so much growth here in Canada. Well, yeah, and I was going to say, if you go back, let's say, 15, 20 years here in Canada, we'd probably be singing a similar tune to that yeah. as well, I would say, to be fair, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Not having any singles players in the top 10 at that time. And not really thinking that we might ever have Grand Slam champions like Bianca Andreescu, uh, Gabby Dabrowski. I mean, we had Daniel Nestor, of course, but otherwise. And look what we've had in the past five years and even 10 years with Milos and Jeannie getting to Grand Slam finals. So it can change. It can change quickly, in fact, because uh, here we are now in Canada being a powerful tennis nation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we could say that with total confidence now. Uh, and we're believing it, and you're seeing how that translates. The public courts are packed. Uh, the Mimico Tennis Club near my house has 800 people on the waiting list. Wow. I am one of them, and if anyone <laughs> from that club is listening and can fast-track my application, I would love that. Um, so, yeah, we've definitely seen the tangible gains in Canada, and if South Africa gets one or two that come along and can inspire, you know, in the aftermath of the Amanda Kutzers and Kevin Andersons, yep. I, I'm sure that that can lead to good things in a country like that, too, again. Yeah, absolutely. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. We're also on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. We'll get to all the tennis action from this past week in Rome and the big storyline on the men's side. I think for me, two storylines. One, 1,000 career match wins for Novak Djokovic, which is, of course, just a remarkable, amazing statistic. Number two, him taking out Stefano Tsitsipas, winning Rome and winning a record 38th Masters 1,000. So maybe like the full storyline here is Novak is definitely back and perfect timing for him just ahead of Roland Garros, where he will be trying to defend his title and getting to number 21. Yeah, we go from Alcaraz, the youth movement in uh, Madrid, to Djokovic, uh, you know, the uh, the veteran, uh, one of the three greatest of all time uh, at the Italian Open in Rome. And he had a pretty tough draw to get through there, a very impressive list of players. Uh, if you look at early going, uh, Karatsev, okay, hasn't been someone who's been playing as well lately, but someone who's had some success in the past and, and can, you know, be capable of upsets. To Stan Vavrinka, who is still in the early stages of his return to the court, so not as as match ready, but still someone that you can't take lightly with his career resume. 
And then it really jumped up a notch with Felix Ogialiassim, 7576. Um, uh, Rude from Norway, who you spoke with last summer at the National Bank Open. Again, straight sets. And then to Bagel, CC Pass, who's had a terrific clay court uh, season here, um, and, and take him out in straight sets as well. Uh, I think that really emphatically said, hey, I'm back to where I could be. I'm back to being uh, the contender that you've all gotten used to over the past 10 years. And look out at the French Open. Uh, he seems like he's ready to defend that title. Yeah, I, I think he's very finely tuned his game here. Such a far cry from what we saw. Obviously, Monte Carlo loses that opening round match uh, to Alejandro Davidovich Vakina. Even his home tournament in Belgrade, Serbia Open, he got to the final, but he was grinding out these tough, tough three setters, barely surviving Kikmanovic. Andrei Rublev beat him in the final there. Here, he doesn't drop a single set. And, um, I don't know. It, it's going to be very tough, I guess, to decide who is the favorite at Roland Garros. I, I would say normally we're going in. You point to the guy who wins it, you know, almost all the time. And Nadal is the easy consensus favorite. But now his foot issue, which reared its ugly head this past week, and we'll talk about that with that currently, you know, basically sidetracking his entire clay season. Is he going to be the favorite going into Roland Garros, even though he's won 13 times? I think with everything going on recently for me, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got those three names that we just kind of mentioned there right. as, as on even footing. Yeah. Um, because Nadal, as you mentioned, the injuries are such a question mark and of any injury to suffer right now. Oh God, not the foot again, not that foot that can act up at a moment's notice. And so now, gosh, how's he going to be in best of five a couple of weeks away around the corner? Djokovic defending champion, starting to kick into high gear. Have we seen enough sample size here to feel supremely confident that we can mm-hmm. say definitively, there's your go-to favorite? I don't think so yet, but you put him up with Nadal. And the third guy being Alcaraz, who's been on fire as well, took a little rest, which was very smart, I think, at this point. Uh, at the same, uh, on the same hand, best of five set doesn't have the same level of experience. And even though we can say, well, he's 18 years old, 19 years old, this kid should be able to go forever. It's just a different beast and animal for you to handle the ups and downs and maintain the composure. And so, yeah, for me, all three, like 33% each, I would say at this point. And I don't see me changing my mind between now and the opening day of play in Paris. Yeah, well, I I guess one element that maybe could have one of us change our mind is the draw, how the draw shakes out. If we're seeing like an early, if we're seeing like a brutal quarter for one of the three, if Novak has to run into Alcaraz in the quarterfinals or something like that, that could spell danger. If Nadal has to take out both of them before the final or something, something crazy like that. We, we don't know yet because with the rankings right now, of course, Djokovic has the number one, but Nadal's back at five. Carlos Alcaraz is six. And I feel like there is a noticeable gap right now between those three players and, and the rest of the tour. I do want to talk about the Canadians though. You mentioned uh, Novak, of course, beating Felix Ocealiasim in straight sets, seven, five, seven, six. I thought this was honestly a fantastic match for those who had a chance to see it. If not, go and watch the highlights. I thought Felix had an amazing showing, um, really strong finish to his clay court season. He was serving lights out. He had two great wins to get there. He beat Davidovich Fakina. We know he's a clay court specialist, beat him in the first round, uh, took out Marco Skiron comfortably in the second, and then really went toe-to-toe with the world number one in two tight, tight sets. So many highlight reel points between these two. I thought his movement was fantastic, and Joker came away from that match very impressed with Felix saying he had to raise his level to the highest gear to beat him. 
Yeah, great compliment from the world number one. And and for Felix, uh, back-to-back tournaments with some really good wins, beating Yannick Sinner uh, 6-1, 6-2 recently in Madrid. That was also um, kind of unexpected given how Felix had been playing as of late. So hopefully he's heading into Roland Garros feeling really comfortable. Um, boy, it'd be great to get him back on the pod. I feel like it's been a little bit of time now since we've spoken to him. Maybe we can nab him in between the clay court and grass court seasons. but. Maybe. Uh, as we talk about how those three guys are so strong as our favorites for Roland Garros, you put Felix in, maybe not the next tier of the CC Pass Zverevs, who both have done back-to-back excellent events on clay, but in that one just below that as yeah. uh, as one of the dark horse players. And I'd put Denis Shapovalov in that category as well as someone that can come in and also, if he catches lightning and is feeling good that week, um, could have a decent run as well. And I'll let you talk about uh, the the Dennis match that caught our attention recently, uh, getting his second ever win over Rafa Nadal. Yeah, look, obviously, Rafael Nadal uh, ended up hampered uh, through the final set of this match. But I I think we always have to make a point of discussing when someone beats one of the members of the big three, and in particular Canadian here, and Denis Shapovalov, after uh, a tough first set where it felt like Rafa was really controlling, dictating play from the back of the court, taking it 6-1, I think Shapovalov should be greatly credited for just sticking around and fighting and scrapping, finding a way to, you know, hold serve, hang with him through the second set, because once he found just an opening in that second set and stole at seven, five, now Nadal was under pressure. And um, look, he got an early break in that third set. I think he went up three to two. And then we have to stretch where you notice Nadal just couldn't move the way he wanted to. Shapovalov wins 17 of the next 20 points and, and wraps up a, a comfortable 6-2 final set. So big time result. I thought it was a very good tournament for him. We talked about kind of the fireworks of what transpired in the first round with some audible obscenities that, of course, we didn't like, but he beat Lorenzo Sonigo, then beats Basilashvili, takes out Nadal and plays a tough two-set loss to Kasper Ruud. No shame there. So I, I think it was a positive tournament. And as I said, like, I think Nadal at that level beats a lot of players in straight sets anyway before the foot injury really crept up. Yeah. Before I, I mentioned Chapel here, I just want to say, do, do we give kudos to Nadal for sticking it out through the rest of the match for the fans or for his competitive spirit? Or do we say, hey, man, what are you doing? Like, just, yeah. you know something's wrong. Just wave yeah. the white flag and get off the court. I, I It's tough because I think... Part of it, too, is the timing of when it happened, because you really saw it like early third set. So maybe he's thinking, like, what if I can somehow, you know, serve my way to easy holds just with huge serves and and somehow sneak up, sneak a set without being able to move? Well, I think that was probably playing in his mind and then i wonder if it's also playing in his mind he doesn't have enough matches on clay and the french open is right around the corner i wonder if that's a factor too Um, but he sort of stressed in the press conference too he was like i'm not an injured player i'm a player who lives with a chronic foot injuries like this this is has existed for years and it it flares up and he'll have his doctor with him at roland garros he certainly stressed that so that's going to be important when you think about it, it's amazing what he's achieved through his career, having something as chronic as this, <laughs> yeah. really, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And on, on Chapeau, I wanted to mention also that a uh, bit surprising, well, very surprising actually to me, that he's parted ways with Jamie Delgado mm-hmm. after only six months, which seems odd to me that you wouldn't give it more time, especially when the early returns seem so strong between the two of them. Uh, Dennis started the year 7-2 and two with a great run, winning the ATP Cup for Canada and going deep at the Aussie Open. And if my count's correct, overall, he went 13-8 and eight 
with Delgado as his coach. Um, the last match, oddly enough, I guess, before the split, I think, was announced was uh, Dennis's loss to Andy Murray, who was Delgado's former uh, pupil. Um, so kind of coincidentally, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, we don't have any inside information, but it just struck me as odd that he would. And it was initiated by Dennis, from what I've heard and read, uh, why, why he would choose to uh, cut the cord there so soon. Yeah, odd decision. We don't have any details, as you said, but uh, we have noticed, we brought this up in the past, we're seeing Peter Polanski in his box um, every tournament, but we haven't heard like an official hiring. So I don't know if that's the direction. Maybe Polanski is becoming um, that full-time coach or just someone who's a full-time member of his team and he feels like he has the voices uh, that he wants there. We should jump over to the women's side. Um what the world number one is accomplishing on the women's side continues to be just downright incredible and amazing. Iga Sviantek, the match winning streak up to 28. She's won five consecutive titles defending her championship in Rome. Uh, Topples Anjabur 6-2-6-2 to win the crown. And look, seven match wins away from 35 and a second Roland Garros. I think the question is, is anybody stopping her? I mean, this has been spectacular. Well, you know, I don't have any money to put down on these tennis matches, but if I did, that's, I wouldn't bet against her. That's for sure. And it's such a great story on the WTA and, and on the heels of Ash Barty retiring. And you and me spoke about this, what, a couple of months ago, how what's going to happen with Barty retiring? Because she seemed like she was ready to really consolidate that number one ranking after winning in Australia and instead she retires and we think, okay, it's going to be kind of open season again. And uh, what do we have? Iga Sviantek coming in and, and consolidating power. And uh, I think it's great. Uh, I, I like either storyline, whether you've got a dominant player or two or three players on a tour who are winning all the time and chasing history and setting records and, and whatnot, or having uh, you know a mix of players who are in contention. I like either. I'm like, I like to jump behind the positivity of a storyline. And it just sucks to me to see some people out there who were bemoaning, oh, there's no competition. And here we have this dominant number one that nobody seems to be able to touch at the moment. And I mean, those are the same chumps that were probably complaining about what things were like when Serena went off on her uh, yeah. pregnancy and, and really opened things up to the depth, I thought, on the WTA Tour and the unpredictability as well, which has been kind of a fascinating storyline in recent years. So I don't know, people just sometimes super critical of the women's game for no uh, coherent or intelligent reason. Um, I think it's great what's happening right now. And also, if this just turns out to be a great hot streak and then we have a few other players who insert themselves in the mix, hey, I think that's pretty good too. That That's fair. And I, I would say, like, if you're being critical, watch her matches. I mean, she's playing unbelievably well I, I watched the final against Jabur and I was like Ans had that look of helplessness on her face in that second set where she's like I don't know what to do against this girl because she's just she's everywhere with her movement she's finding angles that are opening up all parts of the court and I look at like what she did on the hard court swing um, her title at Indian Wells where she did have a few like tough three setters now I think like her movement is already elite and it's even harder to hit through her on clay that this surface, like her game just plays up that much more. And you look at some of the score lines in her title, Sabalenka, 6-2-6-1, Azarenka, 6-4-6-1, Ruse in the first round, 6-3-6-love. So we should mention Bianca Andreescu pushing her in that quarterfinal, uh, going 7-6 in the first set. Uh, six love in the second and I think that's just a factor of like you have someone who's world number one so supremely confident that once she got that first set she just kind of steamrolled in the second 
Yeah, well said. And uh, why don't we touch on our Canadian uh, woman here, uh, Bianca Andrescu, who's uh, still in the early stages of her return after six months away and tournament by tournament making strides and improvements. Uh, she went one and one in Stuttgart, two and one in Madrid, and now three and one in Rome. Uh, I mean, if she carries on like this, she's winning Wimbledon, I guess, because she'll be seven and something at that point. But uh, it is great to see her finding her stride on clay. Um, so she's played, what, two, five, uh, nine matches on clay in the last month, which is more than the number of clay court matches she had had in the previous four years. <laughs> that's crazy. Um, that That's crazy. And, you know, we joked with her when we spoke to her, like I, I said, you haven't really had a clay season. She was like, well, I haven't really had a full season in general. So um, now that we're seeing uh, the fruits of these dividends with her playing through clay, she's doing great. I think she's a big time dark horse at the French Open. I will say that much. Just want to note, Anja Burr continues to play great back-to-back finals. I think she has to be on that short list of maybe a French Open contender. And then we have to just touch on doubles. Gabby Dabrowski and Juliana Almos, after winning in Madrid following week, get to the final. Um, So back-to-back finals for Dabrowski and Olmos, um, peaking at the perfect time ahead of Roland Garros. They are going to have such a high seating, you would have to imagine, at the French Open, which is terrific and well-deserved. And uh, would love to see Gabby hoist another uh, women's doubles slam trophy. I got to say, my only complaint is that the women's doubles finals was put at the same time as jo- Djokovic's CC pass. Yeah. Why would you do that? Like, we've never seen that here in Canada, in Montreal or Toronto. It's always one before the other, right? Uh, I, I just, yeah, very disappointed to see that they would do that to women's doubles. And, and Gabby noted that as well on her social media. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair point. Um, we want exposure, I think, to doubles. That's that's part of the issue why uh, people don't talk about it much. We we don't get to see it, so uh, you know, vary the times, give fans a chance to at least watch the doubles. We'll wrap um, bracket challenge. This week was a pretty rough one for me. I'll say in Rome, I, I think on the ATP side, maybe I managed top uh, 53rd WTA was a complete disaster as I tried to pick outside the box and suggest maybe somebody could stop Iga's winning streak. Didn't happen. Oh, did you pick someone against her? <laughs> yes, I believe I did. That's um, the last time you'll, you'll make that. Uh, yeah. Last time I'll make friend. that mistake. No kidding. Uh, you know, what got me was the Alcaraz withdrawal and I don't oh, know if it was yeah. after the bracket closed. So right. he was out, and the the bracket automatically put for me Finland's Emil Rusevori all the <laughs> way to the finals. Ouch! Yeah, uh, that, yeah, so that was my champion pick by accident. Right, right. Oh, Simona Halep, I, I took to take her out. Danielle Collins, credit to her, she beat Simona Halep in in a great two set match. Um, won't have a bracket challenge for Roland Garros, but uh, they'll come up uh, with the Masters 1000s coming up after that. Um, but we will have a Roland Garros preview coming as well, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again to Hotel X, the official hotel of Matchpoint Canada. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>